welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live. We are in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where we continue our tour de force through the Canada program. And today we are lucky enough to have the woman with whom I have shared an office for the past nine months, Tracy Newman. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So the big question that everyone I'm sure is wondering, the most important thing on the docket today what has it been like sharing an office with me <laughs> since late August? You are an excellent office mate. Oh. I have I have no complaints about you as an office mate. Well, that can't be true. No, it really is. I mean, my only complaint about you as an office mate is that you've tried to make me turn the lights out, which right. is not my thing. Right. A pet peeve of mine is that when the, you leave the office and the lights are on, that, yeah, that I've tried to change that yes and, and largely have, unsuccessfully yes yes i would i would like to note uh for your listeners that the lights are on a timer and if i don't turn them out they go out about 45 seconds later <laughs> uh but that said uh, i have i have resented your efforts to make me okay turn the lights out that's um, fair no, you actually you are you're a fantastic office mate. It's been a good arrangement because we don't have a lot of room in here. We are I should mention that we are recording in our office. Yes. Uh, and there's not that much room in here. So if either one of us really graded on the other one, it could have been a very negative situation. Yeah. And very quickly. Yeah, and I it think, could have devolved. I think you're implying that I have also been a good office mate. Yes, that's I'm what happy I'm saying. To hear that. Just in a very round <laughs> in a very roundabout way. So I don't give a direct compliment. I would not necessarily have guessed that, but that's good. That's good to hear. I got here first. I took the good desk by the window. Yeah, my only complaint about the desk, I like the desk, and I like that the lights don't go off on me. If I'm in here by myself, I'm within the sensor, so they won't go off. They'll go off on you if you're here by yourself. Yes. And you have to sort of wave your arm. The thing that I don't like, though, about where I sit is that when the door is open, I'm sort of on display. To the hall. Oh, yeah. Right? Whereas yeah. you aren't. That's true. I didn't even think about that aspect of it. I just wanted to be by the window. Right, right. But I've, I've found that, like, right now, so it's late afternoon as we're recording, that the sun sort of is comes in on part of your mm-hmm. your desk. And given my aversion to sunlight, <laughs> I don't think that would have gone well for me. Well, good, good. Yeah. I'm glad that, that this has worked out. For yeah, I, I, think it's, I think it's worked out really well. <laughs> so we should say, too, that you are the other William Lyon Mackenzie King postdoctoral fellow in the Canada program at the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs at Harvard University. Yes. Very long titles that we have. Yes. But in addition, you are an assistant professor at Wayne State University in Detroit. And one of the first things that I asked you when we met back in August was, if you're an assistant professor, how are you taking up a postdoc? And I think some of our listeners perhaps would have that same question. So... The rule is here is that it's five years out from your degree that you can take a postdoctoral fellowship. So, I mean, it's all in the up and up. But just for you being here as an assistant professor taking up a postdoc, what has that experience been like for you? Has it been a challenge in any way to go from what most people would consider down on the ladder from a professor to a postdoc? Uh, has it changed your approach to your work at all? Like, what, Just on a day-to-day basis, what's it been like going from professor to postdoc? 
Uh, it's been kind of great. No, it, it it's funny when you say taking up what I the way I initially interpreted that as you have taken away the spot from a graduate student who could have needed yeah, it, who could have used I, it better. Not, yeah, no, I know that's, that's not what you meant. Yeah. But but to the extent that I've thought about being in a postdoc versus some other kind of fellowship, I've been very conscious of the fact that I have a job and I have taken up a position that maybe by all rights should have gone to someone who was ABD or one or two years out without another position to go back to and felt some guilt about that at various mm. points. That guilt has generally been uh, overcome by brownies and yeah. other copious amounts of Lunches free food and, yeah, that I get. I, I eat and forget. Uh, I forget my guilt. But other than that, I don't really think I've thought too much about it. I mean, I guess in some ways it, the title is a step down, but it's not like I've given up my assistant professor title. Right. Uh, You're on so, leave for the year. Yeah, I'm on leave for the year. Yeah. And so I still describe myself as an assistant professor, typically. Yeah. And you're still uh, doing stuff for Wayne State while yes. you're here. So you're not completely separate from no. Wayne State. Yeah. By any means. Yeah. I uh, probably could have stood to be a little more separate. <laughs> no, but that, I mean, I think, I guess that's probably the difference, right? I, I'm not formally required to do service for Wayne, but I've done a little while I've been here. Yeah. I'm still advising some students, that sort of thing. So in that way, I think I'm, I'm probably not the typical postdoc, but mm-hmm. it's still, but it's been a great experience for me. Yeah. And I think it's been good too, between the three postdocs that are, are largely involved in the program, not to dismiss sort of Nicole as being a part of the program, but the three who are sort of on the floor that right. we see every day, three very different career points yeah right? i'm yeah. i'm sort of fresh out of the phd this is my first real year on the job market mm-hmm. sarah this is her third year yeah. out of the phd uh second year here right doing the postdoc on the job market successful in the job market yes and here you are after being at wayne state for four years you're putting together your tenure packet right right so hopefully successful hopefully successful tenure packet so very different stages yes for three postdocs so it's been interesting for me, at least, to see everyone else yeah. and different career paths and different ideas applying for different stuff, it's been a lot of fun. Whereas if we were all fresh out of the PhD, like if everyone was in the same position I mm-hmm. was, maybe it's not as interesting because we would just sit around and complain about the job market all day. Yeah, although I feel like we did do we did do that a lot playing with the job market. Yeah. But I think the other thing would be if I was another history PhD fresh out, I think that there would have been perhaps a competitive environment depending right. on... I don't think either of us are actually like that, but depending on who else had come in with you, it might have been a different yeah. environment. We we weren't really wouldn't have been competing for the same job, right. but yeah. So I think that I think that has been good, and you have been very patient with Sarah and me as we decided to offer you all sorts of advice, some of which you asked for, and most of which you didn't. Uh, we we sat around and plotted your future steps and made you do things like put together five-year plans. And yes, which I didn't actually do a five-year plan. No, you've been rather resistant, actually. I was very resistant our on efforts, that, yeah. our unsolicited efforts to mentor you. <laughs> 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 um, but one of the things, too, that, that you were doing while we were here, and, and it's been fun for me because I signed a contract with U of T Press yes. early on when I got here. I can't remember exactly when I, I signed the contract. Yeah, it was, it was very exciting. But at the same time that I was doing that and going through getting the contract secured, you were in the final stages of edits, copy edits, right. getting the proofs for your book, right? which is out. No. Not, not, out. not as we're recording. Oh. Not, so as, as we're recording, <laughs> it's not out, but it will be out once we post this. Yes. And 
I know we're, we're 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 messing with the space time <laughs> continuum as we like to do on the show. So the book is entitled "Remaking the Rust Belt: The Post-Industrial Transformation of North America." And we'll talk about the book a little bit uh, in a minute. But I want to talk about this process okay. of of getting the book out because it was fun for me as someone who hopefully will be going through the process of copy edits, proofs, all that stuff. To see you, you know, getting this stuff. I'm glad that um, was fun for someone. <laughs> it was maybe okay. Fun might not be the right word. How about interesting, instru- okay. instructive okay. to to see it, and like even when you decided on the cover. Oh yeah, that's right. We all very much like the cover Thank of the book, and and if you're getting this through iTunes, if you go to Active History, the cover of the book will be included on the post for this. So just seeing that process. Uh, was was instructive for me, knowing, I mean, a sense of what it would be like when I hopefully go through it. So was that, you mentioned that, you know, it wasn't necessarily fun for you, but compared to what you thought going through the book process would be to what it actually was, what was different, what surprised you? It was, I mean, it was exciting, let's say that, but it, I don't think anyone particularly enjoys copy editing or going over proofs. I could be wrong about that, actually. But I think that the thing that was the most surprising to me is how exhausting that stage of it was. I, you know, I wasn't, well, I was teaching in the fall, but I had two students. It yeah. was not a terribly onerous <laughs> teaching assignment. They were both incredibly smart. It was a fun class. Uh, and I didn't have a lot of other responsibilities. So I think I sort of came in thinking, oh, I don't have, I don't have much by way of service work. I only have one class. It's going to be so easy to get all of this done. Um, and it wasn't that, that, that I was at a time crunch to finish it, but it's incredibly detail-oriented work, which right. is just very exhausting. And so I'd, I'd done proofs and copy edits, copy edits for articles, but doing it for something book-length was a very different experience. And it's also something that you've read so you know, many times. 200 times, yeah, right? So, yeah. so everything could sort of blend in together, Yeah, that it's hard to pick up a small issue. Yes. And I was very lucky. I had a research assistant at Wayne State, Andrew Nato, who kindly agreed to read everything over for me and mm-hmm. caught several things. And then I ended up using some of the money from Harvard to hire an indexer, uh, this right. guy, Tim Pearson, who was fantastic. And he also did a proofread of the, the final draft, which was super helpful. And I think that having those two extra sets of eyes on it made me much more confident because by the end of it, yeah, that's exactly it. You, mm. You're you so used to reading it. It's hard. If there's a word missing, you, you just you can't even see it anymore. Yeah. yeah. And I, mean, I think yeah. that's true with an article too, probably, but certainly with something like a dissertation that has become your book, that parts of have been conference papers. You've yeah. just, you've looked at this material so much that mm. you start to lose the ability to, to see errors or see places where uh, stuff might not make sense outside of your own head. Because yeah, that's the thing too. You're so involved in it, yeah. That, and it's something that I, I'm constantly worried about. That either I'm going too inside mm-hmm. that I haven't explained something well enough, or that I'm too worried about going inside that I'm pandering or talking down right, to the yeah. audience. Right. So having other people to look at it it's is super helpful. helpful, and particularly people who perhaps don't know anything about yeah. what you're writing about. Yeah. Because people who perhaps don't know what you're writing about are going to read the book. So you want to have a sense of what that reaction will be. Yeah, yeah. 
No, I think I have to say the thing, the little detail-oriented thing that I found the most frustrating to deal with was acronyms. Uh, because yeah. as I edited and moved things around, figuring out where I needed to put the acronym for the first time or like the only time was that was somehow the thing that I found the most tedious about the entire process. Right, right, and, and it's because it's, it's, it's interesting too. Like when when you pick up a book and there's that list of acronyms mm-hmm. on the first page. I always get concerned because it means there's a lot of acronyms yeah. in the book and I'm going to constantly have to be going back and yeah. forth. And so it, I, I imagine it would be difficult if you have acronyms in a book too, trying to figure out yeah, when is the first time I yeah. use it. Or you know, if I use it in chapter one in full, should I use it again in chapter three in full? Yeah. Fortunately, yeah. the press has guidelines for that sort of thing, okay. so I didn't have to make that decision myself. That's good. But yeah, but this is sort of a tedious kind of comment to even make, but it was right. such a tedious part of it to deal with. Right, and right. Because we think of publishing as like, oh, you write a book, this very intellectual yeah. process, but there is a lot of minutia yeah. involved to get from idea research to a physical thing yeah. that you can hold in your hands. Yeah, and my editor was great, and Pen Press was great, but it's it's my understanding, having never written a book before, I can't compare my own experience to this, but that presses in general do a lot less hand-holding and editing on their own. Right? They hire right. a copy editor, they send you proofs, these sorts of things, but um, you yourself have to do a lot more of that kind of labor that used to be someone else's job right. uh, maybe 15 years ago. Yeah. So, and we're not particularly well trained to do that if everyone's dissertation and all of the errors in it, you know, are an example. Right. So. Yeah. So let's talk about the book, the, con- okay. the content of the book. The content of the book. So again, it's Remaking the Rust Belt, the Post-Industrial Transformation of North America. And at its core, the book is a comparative study of the uh, urban renewal in Pittsburgh and Hamilton. Is that fair for me to say? Sort of. I wouldn't okay. say urban renewal. I okay. would say uh, I'd say urban redevelopment. That, okay. but that's a sort of. Um, that's just a semantic thing. That's a semantic thing because urban renewal is a federal program in both countries okay. that is affiliated with a particular time period. But I may be the only person who cares to make that particular <laughs> semantic <laughs> distinction, even among urban historians. But anyway, yeah, I would say urban urban development or urban redevelopment. Okay, so the, so it very much operates as a comparative study in the text, mm-hmm. but as you've mentioned to me on a, on a few occasions and in the talks that you've given about the book that there's really a wider North Atlantic context to this about the redevelopment of industrial space yeah. in the North Atlantic. So how does Pittsburgh and Hamilton help illuminate that wider context? Yeah, so the book is is sort of pitched at three levels and the broadest is this sort of North Atlantic context and the post-industrial redevelopment of declining manufacturing centers. Um, the second is, as you say, a comparative case study uh, between Pittsburgh and Hamilton. And the third is looking at the two as exemplary of this, this broader redevelopment uh, that is happening kind of around the world. And so... Pittsburgh actually is the model for a lot of what's happening, both in the U.S. and Canada and more broadly, uh, which is is how the North Atlantic context comes in. So Pittsburgh becomes the root of a model that circulates kind of broadly within the North Atlantic. Um, Hamilton and Pittsburgh, of course, I'm assuming your listeners are relatively familiar, but perhaps not, are both steel towns. They are interesting cases in that Hamilton steel, steel mills are good examples of domestically owned Canadian industry, of which there isn't a ton necessarily in that part of Canada. They're not U.S. branch plants. Uh, and Hamilton, for a long time, looks to Pittsburgh 
for redevelopment models, urban redevelopment models, industrial redevelopment models, economic development models. And they do this. My, uh, my book looks mainly at 1968 to the 1990s. It, it looks a bit at the earlier period, but they've been doing this for much longer. Um, Hamilton actually initially looked at English steel towns mm-hmm. for models and then sort of switched after around World War II and after World War II right. to looking at the U.S. a bit more. So they become, I mean, Pittsburgh is, is a good way to get into this because in some ways it is the model for what lots of places are trying to do. It becomes sort of the, the international poster, poster child for post-industrial redevelopment. And Hamilton is a good comparative case because Hamilton is very explicitly looking at Pittsburgh and sending delegations down to Pittsburgh to see mm-hmm. what's going on. But I think it's also a pretty good case. I, you know, I'm, I do comparative work. I work on the U.S. and Canada. Obviously, I'm in the Canada program, but I was trained as an Americanist. Yeah. So when I sort of set out to write this book, I was interested in looking at why U.S. manufacturing centers declined and why they had been revitalized in particular ways. And Canada seemed like a, a pretty good comparative case or it seemed like I would find a pretty good comparative case in Canada. This was before I had settled on Pittsburgh and Hamilton, um, because Canada is so similar in so many ways, but so different in some really important ways. So I think that Hamilton provides a nice comparative case versus looking at, say, somewhere in France or in England, because the political system and sort of cultural norms are a little more similar to the U.S., but not quite the same. No, that makes sense. And and the... The question I would have, though, with, with respect to the North Atlantic context stuff, I mean, Hamilton and Pittsburgh, as you say, are steel towns mm-hmm. and are very well known as steel towns. Yeah. So within the North Atlantic context, is it industry specific because the space of a, a steel mill would be different from you know a car plant, yeah. for instance, right? So sure, can you, you can use some of these models for, say, Sheffield mm-hmm. in England, which I think is the only steel town I know in England. Um, it's the big one, yeah. But... <laughs> so, but so is it transferable only within the same industrial setting, or is there a wider context for any industrial areas? Or does the, does the industry itself matter? I don't think what the industry produced? itself does matter. And in fact, the reason I think that the steel industry is particularly interesting, particularly useful in this respect, is because these steel towns were among the earliest hit and hardest hit uh, mm. with sort of deindustrialization, uh, industrial restructuring, whatever language you want to use to talk about it. And so you know, if you think of what we might call the Rust Belt, what I call the Rust Belt, in its earliest iteration as something of a decline in, in a transnational steel and coal belt that's happening at slightly different time period, but it tends to be the earliest and hardest hit industries in all of these countries, so in some ways the canary in the coal mine quite literally right. uh, that, that it's steel and coal country but when you end up having things like the auto industry hit or even you know sort of even even dock areas docklands and fishing and these sorts of things the redevelopment tactics that planners and policymakers and I, you know I talk about growth coalitions right it's something that's composed of local political and business elites trying to remake urban space mm-hmm. for new social and economic uses they look to this same model that is kind of pioneered in these steel towns because they look at them and they see a deindustrializing city or a city that's losing its traditional manufacturing base or traditional industrial base right. and by sort of the 1980s certain parts of these look 
very successful. Pittsburgh, to its work, you know, unemployed workers would not have looked like a big success story in the 1980s, but to people coming from Bilbao, Spain, or, or, or mm. coming over from England, or coming over from parts of France, the ways in which the downtown had been revitalized and the ways in which they sort of distracted the eye from some of the industrial decline looked very compelling and like something that was transferable outside of that context. Now, the question as to whether or not it is transferable outside of that context is a different one, but but people certainly thought that it would be. Which is strange because, as you yes. mentioned, like the, the transferable part of it is so important because there's, as you've talked about and as you talk about in the book, there are very specific a very specific set of economic, cultural, social mm-hmm. relationships in Pittsburgh that allow the local state governments, along with these these companies, to do what they do mm-hmm. um, that don't exist elsewhere. And, mm-hmm. and you, as I mentioned, you live, work in Detroit, and one of the things you've talked about is how a lot of this stuff isn't trans. Pittsburgh to Detroit isn't transferable. It's just the cities are just too different. Mm-hmm. So why don't people who are looking at Pittsburgh understand how the local reality in each place really matters? And particularly if you're coming from overseas to look at it. Yeah. Like the the regulatory political structures of European life are so different from American life. Like how are these concepts even thought to be transferable? Yeah, that so the way that ends up working, it, it's tra- they're transferred imperfectly, and certainly, you know, you see planners and consultants and architects and designers and the sorts of people who are moving these ideas around talking about those those kinds of problems, but they they often dismiss them. And actually, I, I have a good example of this in the Canadian context, which is that you know if you look at Hamilton, you see. The city of Hamilton hires consultants every 10 years or so, probably to the present day. I haven't, I haven't paid that much attention after the 1990s, but they're certainly still looking at Pittsburgh. But they're hiring consultants to, to write up redevelopment plans for the cities. They all go and look at Pittsburgh. They all note that you know things work a little differently down there in the United States, mm-hmm. and that one of the reasons Pittsburgh is so successful is that they have... You, know, you mentioned that it's not super transferable because of a particular set of things, and these yeah. things are exceptionally strong foundations, the local foundations that invest locally, they have two, what were by the 1970s, two major research universities that invest in the city and are very involved in the power structure of the city. And they had a state government that worked very closely with local businessmen beginning right after World War II to set up legislation, let, let the city behave in a pretty entrepreneurial fashion. Right, So they could offer a lot of tax incentives for things. They could offer development subsidies. Uh, most American states and cities do these kinds of things now. They didn't necessarily when Pittsburgh was doing them. But those things just weren't possible in Hamilton because... Yeah the province didn't allow it. And they wouldn't have been possible necessarily in England because the national government wouldn't have allowed it. There's a much stronger sense of nationally or centralized regional development, centrally administered regional development in most other countries than the U.S., right, where everything is very, very local. And so that would be one example of how they really aren't transferable. And yet... I think part of it at the end of you know at the end of the day it comes down to people being tasked with finding a solution to a problem that doesn't really have a very good solution or an right. obvious solution or a solution that you can 
deal with in a sort of a period of economic crisis or when there's not political will, these sorts of things. And so the best thing you can do, or the, what seems like the best thing to do, is look at somewhere else that's somewhat similar to you or that has mm. somewhat similar pro- problems as your problems and just try to do what they did. And I, right. I think in some ways, you know, this comes down to looking like you're doing something and maybe right. knowing it's not really going to be successful or hoping mm. it's going to be successful or thinking maybe you can change, you know, in Canada, in the case of Canada, change provincial laws to right. make this possible. But then the other thing with Pittsburgh yeah. that is sort of confusing to me and, and I don't know much about Pittsburgh, but when you see Pittsburgh now, I mean, for me, it's within this context of sports. Uh-huh. Uh, of you know, they have they have two beautiful new stadia or three beautiful new stadia. We have a new baseball field, uh, a new football field, and a new hockey arena, mm-hmm. and all of which look spectacular. The baseball field, in particular, uh, it's very nice. You can see this, the, the skyline of yeah. the city. Good place to read a book, apparently. Yes. I've, I've been told. <laughs> um, so, so you know, publicly it looks, it all looks good. Yeah. From the outside. Yeah. But one of the things you talk about in the book is that for the workers themselves, for the poorest segment of the population, this redevelopment doesn't help them that much. Yeah. So, given that that's the case, and there is some strife locally in Pittsburgh over all these things, why are people then looking to Pittsburgh? Or is that just not a big deal to? these other people who are coming in, like the, the consultants from Hamilton who come down to Pittsburgh, are they unconcerned about how the former workers are being treated and, and how mm-hmm. they are upset that they're out of jobs and, and that the, the development doesn't necessarily help them in a way? Like, how are they dealing with the any, what appears to be an inequality in the way the, the redevelopment goes? Well, what they end up doing is reproducing it in their own plans. But part of it, I think that particularly for Hamilton, for Canadians, there are different kinds of labor protections in Canada, right? So first of all, there's national health care. And there are real job retraining programs in this period. Um, There are plant closing notification requirements and all of these sorts of things. And it's worth noting, too, that, you know, for your Canadian listeners who might know the Hamilton steel industry, which until very recently, was still producing plenty of steel. It just had a very downsized um, worker number of workers. The Pittsburgh steel mills collapsed almost entirely right. by the mid-1980s. So you right. had kind of like a they're different... they're gone. Like, they're just gone from they're the go- landscape. They're like, gone, they're Physically, yeah. they're not there anymore. Yeah, I mean, yeah. The, they were around, you know, I think they... I don't actually know when all of them were raised, but, you know, they, they took down the last remnants of the mill on the south side in the 1990s, these sorts of things. They're still... They've kept parts of blast furnaces and that mm. sort of thing is, is kind of a historic preservation effort. But, um, but yeah, the mills are gone and the jobs were gone. And so I think that in the Canadian context, it didn't necessarily look like this was going to be a conflict between redevelopment and jobs. Mm. Uh, I think it is becoming that in Hamilton right. as the mills are closing down. But, you know, you, you would even have sort of the members of the Labor Council, the Hamilton and District Labor Council going down to Pittsburgh and being very excited about the kind of redevelopment that was happening. So part of it might have actually been a, a fairly sophisticated understanding of differences in union strength and mm. and these sorts of things and the kind of protections workers had. But I think part of it is that, you know, a lot of these people come down, and I think this is definitely true of the way planners were trained at the time, or a lot of planners were trained at the time, and they look at cities and space and maps and planning as something that is somewhat disconnected from people. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so it becomes about remaking downtown to look a different way. Right. And you're not necessarily thinking about who's getting pushed out. There was a lot of advocacy planning going on uh, and neighborhood-based planning going on in Pittsburgh in the 1970s, so there were certainly people thinking about this. But in, in kind of master planning exercises, a lot of the focus was on making sure that Pittsburgh projected an outward air of investor confidence, right? That mm-hmm. they, they were worried about having headquarters buildings, and this was something Hamilton wanted to. Right. They were worried about having sort of a sleek downtown with restaurants and boutiques, and this was something Hamilton wanted to. Because... You're getting into a period where cities need to look a certain way to attract, right. you know, job to attract middle class jobs, white collar jobs, to attract tourists, to attract right. executives, these sorts of things. And so, I think a lot of that, I think things sort of get boxed off in separate ways, and, and they're not necessarily thinking about them together. Mm-hmm. Even though the net effect of this is one that is very unequal. And I think, I mean, I think the since you won't actually let me just read introdu- the introduction right, of my book to you, yeah. which would be so much easier for me. <laughs> I, I think I, the way I talk about it in the book is to say is to say something to the effect of these decision makers, right, policymakers, mayors, um, planners are faced with some sort of hard choices about how they're going to use right. resources, and we might not particularly like the way they did it, right? It, it ends mm-hmm. up being. A, a very unequal use of resources. But this is sort of in the trickle-down period, right? The idea, right. they have this idea, and this is true in the U.S. and in Canada, too, to a, a slightly lesser extent, and also in the U.K., And but there's this notion that, um, on both the left and right, a, a, a sort of across political parties, that what you need to do uh, to have an, a prosperous city is to attract a particular type of resident and to mm. have corporations and to have hotels and to have these sorts of things and that that's going to be the thing that creates some sort of basis for continued economic growth in cities mm. and that doesn't work and we know that in hindsight but that was it's sort of the prevailing idea at the time mm-hmm. uh, that a lot of these and they, and they didn't have a lot of other options um, it wasn't like a bunch of plants were trying to move to Pittsburgh. Right. Right. Like you have to, ch- yeah, there has to be a change in what's yeah. happening. And it's yeah. just a matter of, of how you do it. And one of the things that I really like, it's it's an image that you have in, that you've used, and I, I don't know if it's in the book, but where one of the steel mills in Pittsburgh used to be, and now it's quite mm-hmm. literally a mall. Mm-hmm. And so as you frame it, it's quite literally gone from a place of production to a place of consumption. Yeah. And that's part of this transformation of that space. Right. And you tell the story of a former union leader who has a specific booth at the Cheesecake Factory. Uh, yeah. That he that he likes to go to because that's where his desk used to be. Yeah, yeah. In the, in the plants. And it's sort of this really remarkable changing of space. Yeah. That happens around the people. Right. Uh, but it, to me it also speaks, and maybe because I don't know that much about American history, that... You know, people argue that the United States is built on consumption anyway. Yeah. That that's sort of the history of the United yeah, States. Right. But in the second half of the 20th century, materialism goes, seems to expand. Mm-hmm. And these sorts of changes, to me, could be part of the, the continuing growth of a consumer culture in the mm-hmm. United States. And really a strong transformation towards just a, a materialistic country. Mm-hmm. And I know materialistic sounds really negative, but... I don't mean it in a super negative way, but it's a country that is largely built on consumption. Like after 9-11, George Bush said, go spend money, go go shopping, right? Like that's where the American economy is. And so this redevelopment is a a sign of that, that you're going from production to consumption. 
Yeah, and I think I mean I think it's broader than the U.S. too. I, I used in the dissertation version of the book, I used some sort of terrible jargony phrase about the respatialization of production or something like this. <laughs> but um, but I think it's part of, and I I don't love to talk about globalization because I think it can be a very kind of meaningless and empty term. It's it means too many things yeah. to use, but. But in this case, it might actually have some utility that as things are sort of increasingly globalized and production is increasingly globalized, um, it you know it used to be the case that you needed to have your sites of production and sites of consumption needed to be in somewhat in proximity to each other, right. and they don't need to be right by right. the the t- I mean the steel industry in the U.S. was in in uh, relative decline by the 1920s and in absolute decline a bit later, but. Over that whole period, it, it became much less important to have the steel next to the things being made out of the steel. Right. And so this isn't, I think it's it's broader than sort of the material, the, the American consumerism or materialism, which is part of it, and uh, also tied into the ways in which labor and production and kind of front office functions and consumption have all been separated out, and these can happen in all different parts of the world, that they don't need to be at all near each other. And mm-hmm. and I think this is another reason, you know, that, that steel towns in general, no matter where they are, are a good place to look at this kind of thing, right? Because mm-hmm. steel used to be, for Western industrialized countries, it was a basic unit of national economies, and it was the economic growth was pegged very closely to it and you needed steel to make cars and you needed steel to fight wars and you needed steel to build buildings and you know you don't need any of those things anymore right. and you haven't for a while and so it becomes a, a good industry to look at how that uh, that geography has changed mm-hmm. with respect to Hamilton then yes I mean, I've driven through Hamilton a bunch of times. I've been to Hamilton a few times. Like, I've mostly, Spoken like someone from Toronto. I've mostly driven through Hamilton. It's <laughs> actually gone to Hamilton. But Hamilton has, for as long as I've been alive, had the reputation of being an ugly town. Yeah. Whereas Pittsburgh, at least in the last mm-hmm. 30 years, has this reputation of being a very beautiful town. Uh-huh. So why hasn't the redevelopment of Hamilton had the same effect on the public consciousness of the city as it seems to have had in Pittsburgh. Like, is I, I realize that, sure, the steel mills physically are still there. Yeah. And until recently, we're still in operation. Right. So obviously, that would have p- part of the reason. But in general, like, was the, the, the situation in Hamilton, was it not as successful in redefining the space as Pittsburgh? Pittsburgh, so I have to say the narratives about both cities within their respective countries are very similar. And yeah. Pittsburgh still, in fact, I was looking at some article maybe three days ago, you know, where you had, I don't even remember who it was, but but someone from Pittsburgh, it wasn't the mayor, but, you know, someone in Pittsburgh city government was making an argument that, you know, we've really got to get over this inferiority complex and stop mm. thinking of Pittsburgh as an ugly steel town because that's not what we are anymore. And so you actually see... Even today, very similar sorts of ideas about how both of these cities are perceived outside of their city, but within their own countries. Yeah. Um, because you know, nobody outside of Canada really knows much about Hamilton and doesn't have those kinds of preconceptions. Yeah. Um, whereas Pittsburgh maybe had sort of a, a broader international reputation as, you know, it's, it's sort of early reputation was hell with the lid blown off. That was sort of the, mm. the catchphrase for, for Pittsburgh, which used to be this very smoky, polluted city, right? But they're still today very worried about their reputation nationally and this idea that people think of them as a dirty, smelly steel town mm. uh, with high unemployment rates and these sorts right. of things. When really what Pittsburgh's economy is today is sort of a, a meds and eds kind of thing with a lot of high technology. And Hamilton's not 
totally dissimilar. Uh, mm-hmm. They have more manufacturing. They'll probably continue to have more manufacturing there. But, I mean, I think part of it, a big part of it is that Hamilton is so close to Toronto. Right. Um, and, you know, Toronto is the pretty city. Well, I think Toronto is a pretty oh. city. Wow. Uh, <laughs> that's a different conversation. That's a different conversation. Yeah. But but Toronto is the the cultural and financial center of Canada. Yeah, it's more, right? yeah, it is, yeah. Um, it, there's a gravitational pull to Toronto. Yeah, yeah. Sure. It's, it, the... Pittsburgh isn't that, certainly, right? I would say Toronto is, is more comparable to New York, but yeah. Hamilton is in its shadow. It's only 45 minutes yeah. away. It's it's turning into really a commuter suburb of uh, Toronto now, which I imagine will lead to ideas about it changing. Right. But Pittsburgh isn't really in anyone's shadow. You know, it's, it's really far away from Philadelphia, yeah. which would be the next kind of big... Hmm. Big city that would that people might think is nice. I mean, it's closer to Cleveland probably, but like Cleveland and Pittsburgh are kind yeah. of similar. So I don't know. I think that perhaps that impression of Pittsburgh is a pretty. Like it, it wins all of these awards for being most livable. It is. It's a love. It's a beautiful city. Um, even outside of the sports stadiums, it's a beautiful <laughs> city. There's lots of st- outdoorsy stuff to do nearby. They've got great museums. It's a great place. But it is. It's. It is not currently bigger than Hamilton in population, but that mm-hmm. is mostly because Hamilton, like Canadian cities, just keeps gobbling up the small right. jurisdictions yeah, yeah, yeah. around it. Yeah. So if what you think of as Pittsburgh versus what we might actually think of as Hamilton, the city of Hamilton, Pittsburgh's mm-hmm. much bigger. So it, I, I think that's part of the difference, that Hamilton's kind of always been in the shadow of Toronto, and mm-hmm. it's probably not going to get out, although they thought they might over the years. Yeah, but the space is but still the, the same. Space like is, the space like they haven't... You know, in, in Pittsburgh, they literally tore down yeah. these industrial yeah. spaces, yeah. and in, in Hamilton, they haven't. And so it's still, like, when you go to Hamilton now, it still looks very industrial, concrete buildings, yeah. lots of gray. Like, it's not, like you say, it's not the most picturesque city. No. Like, it's not, yeah. as far as I know, winning a lot of awards for architecture no. sort of thing, right? So, no. so the, the spatial redefinition has been much more pronounced than Pittsburgh. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And But I think, I mean, something that maybe I haven't made too clear in any of the talks I've given that you've heard me talk about is that most of Pittsburgh, so most of Hamilton's industry is concentrated along Hamilton Harbor, right, right, right near downtown. Yeah. Most of Pittsburgh's industry was actually in the, the late, you know, second half of the 20th century, was outside of the city limits, okay. which made it much easier. So there, there were two steel mills in the city of Pittsburgh, and they were big, but they weren't, you know, Homestead's right next door, but it's a different jurisdiction. It became easier, I think, for the sort of the growth coalition that wanted to redefine Pittsburgh as a white collar, you know, sort of finance and service oriented city to do that with geographical boundaries that allowed them to point out that, you know, most of the poverty and most of the suffering and most of the collapsed industry is actually outside of the boundaries of town, whereas Hamilton is right next to downtown. Now, the steel mills that were in Pittsburgh were very close to downtown. So, you know, it's not it's not that they didn't do what you're saying, but I think there was a way that they were able to get people to reimagine Pittsburgh as the city itself and the mm. attractions in the city and not think about it. And people outside of Pittsburgh, right? Not right. Yeah, people yeah, in the yeah. region think about it probably the same way they've always thought about it. But but to think about Pittsburgh as the city rather than Pittsburgh as the region, the, the coal and steel producing region. Right. And you don't have the opportunity really to do that in the same way in Hamilton. Mm. I would say, too, Pittsburgh did not... Pittsburgh had a lot of urban renewal projects that produced a lot of ugly stuff, but they did not tear down their entire downtown in its entirety and put sure. up sort of a, an ugly concrete 
modernist building like Hamilton did, which Hamilton seems to be in the throes of trying to rehabilitate in a more attractive way. Right. Right. And and two, I mean, because there's that separation of space, it, perhaps it would be easier than for Pittsburgh because you're not it's not as disruptive yeah. to change where the mill is because not as many people are there every day. Like if you're downtown, right. like disrupting a whole downtown for a five year project is a lot harder. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think it's also a lot easier when you've Obviously, you're not going to tear the mill down if they're still if they're the still, still, still working. Yeah, but and then there's but Pittsburgh. We're, um, it was you, it's harder to sell Hamilton as not a, a blue collar city when it clearly when there's is. still a lot of blue collar workers. workers. Yeah. yeah, and then there's also the residential element that you've talked about, where in Hamilton people lived close to the mill, a lot mm-hmm. of the workers. So to redefine that space, you also have the, the residential component mm-hmm. as well, which adds a whole nother, yeah. another element to it. Now, one thing I do want to talk about, because okay. this has come up in the question and answer period, I think of all the talks that I've seen you you give, is the the race and gender question. That what seems to be going on, and, and at least stereotypically, a steel worker mm-hmm. is going to be a white man, mm-hmm. a, a blue-collar person. Mm-hmm. And these are the people who are losing their jobs and I want to ask this in a more intelligent way than, you know, where are the women and where are the minorities? Like, because that isn't the most interesting way to ask ask that question. But it, it seems as though in the last 40 years or so, those blue-collar white male workers mm-hmm. are the ones who feel disenfranchised. Mm-hmm. And that urban redevelopment hasn't addressed their needs, or at least as they right. as they view it. And those are the people who are very angry, <laughs> are, are angry in one way or the, like, yeah. are, are angry at the situation. I, I, in my class, sort of frame it as Archie Bunker, they're like yeah. Archie Bunker voters, right. and not, not with the same racist and sexist overtones of Archie Bunker, but people who have, feel like they've gotten a raw deal, that everything they were promised as a kid, that if you work hard, you will get a good job, you'll be able to support your family. And they started mm-hmm. with that, and they started in a mill. They had a, a unionized job, and then those jobs went away. And they are angry about that. Mm-hmm. Now, is that too simplistic a way to look at it, that, that this is this class of people? And two, we do know that there were women and that there were minorities working in the plants yeah. as well. So should we consider, when we talk about steel, worker, steel workers, them as a more diverse group than I think a lot of people would generally feel or do the minority and women workers have different priorities from the male counterparts I'm, I'm wishing now I have about 10 articles bookmarked uh, to read that I haven't read yet it, it, popular articles there was just a piece in Jacobin uh, a little while ago maybe last week by Connor Kilpatrick about sort of the this exact this vilification of the white working class by yeah. by white liberals and I glanced through it and have been following the firestorm on Twitter about it, but I haven't actually had a chance to read any of the stuff I've been bookmarking to look at. So I'm not going to comment on present day stuff, sure, uh, yeah. but I think that that's kind of where that's headed. But I will say, it, it, insofar as the question about, are there more women and minorities? Yeah, there definitely were. And they don't, I mean, this is, they don't really show up in the story I'm telling, in part because the workers that I talk about other than, I, you know, I sort of talk about the people being laid off from the mills in Pittsburgh and downsized, and in, in, um, this happens in Hamilton, too. It's just not at quite the same scale. It, it tends to be women and minorities in, in Pittsburgh. This is my 
primarily African Americans, who are laid off first. And so they mm. fall out of the story first because, right. you know, union contracts are uh, last hired, first fired. And so what you end up with is a kind of an early round of layoffs before the plant closings in which a lot of these people are sort of thrown out and they're already in service sector jobs when the big shutdowns come. And so the people mm. who are left and who end up protesting that um, and who's you know, who are kind of the, the last remnants of that group of workers in Pittsburgh tend to be the, the sort of the people you're talking about, the stereotypical mm. white ethnic steel workers. Not, not all of them. There's certainly women yeah. involved. There's certainly African-Americans involved. But I mean, part of it in the story that I was telling or I'm telling is trying to look for comparable examples between Hamilton and Pittsburgh led me to look at particular spaces. So the three particular cases that I look at are downtown redevelopment, which doesn't have a terrible lot to do with workers, period, right? right. Um, I mean, they, it's not that they're not involved in the story, but it's not about spaces that we necessarily think of as being right. working-class spaces. And then about the mill, the neighborhoods next to the mills, which in Hamilton and Pittsburgh both, for one of the mills, the Southside Mill, were primarily a working-class white neighborhood. The other mill in Pittsburgh, it's across the river, in Hazelwood, that by the time period that I'm talking about is primarily an African-American, a poor African-American neighborhood. But the people living there don't necessarily work in the mills. You know, it's the site of a renewal project. They're, they're a whole host of things. And so that's where race does tend to come into the story, is through that mm. particular neighborhood and the conflicts around um, reuse of the things in that neighborhood and what's being developed in that neighborhood and really just how much the neighborhood is being cut out of it, in mm. part because they aren't as well organized as their white counterparts across the river by the other steel mill. Um, they don't, you know, they just don't have the, the kinds of connections. And then my third study, the case study, is, is urban branding, um, which again, the working class and race come up in that insofar as they're, they're depicted in particular ways. So, right. so for example, um, not surprisingly, one of the things that Pittsburgh's boosters want to do is sell it as a place where race isn't really a problem because this right. is the early 1980s, right? It's, it's so they want to they want to talk about other Midwestern and East Coast cities as being these these flashpoints for racial tension and places where riots happen. Mm. And Pittsburgh just isn't like that. So they do things like like feature middle-class African-American, like finance workers and academics right. and these sorts of things. But when it comes to the mills and the, the unions themselves and this sort of notion of white working-class anger, I mean, that's, that's rooted in something. We don't have these stereotypes for no reason. But I think, it's, I think it is a little more complicated than that. And I think, you know, like thinking, it's hard to think about that stuff and not think about the current election and what's going on with yeah. Trump and these sorts of things. Yeah, it's a hard kind of thing to sort out yeah. because a lot of... People in the white working class are racist. A lot of middle class white people are racist. A lot of wealthy white people are racist, right? right. Like, race is a much broader problem than uh, a sort of a class based one. It, right. This is a cross class problem, right? Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. And there's there's been some interesting work done looking at the idea of the Reagan Democrats and is this really as much of a thing as we thought it was or did people just not vote and you know so so I think some of these these kind of assumptions that we have about the white working class turning sort of more conservative in particular ways are being undermined by other scholars but I don't want to suggest that there isn't a, a reasonable route to that stereotype either it's not just white people who have been disenfranchised or white people who have been pushed out of Right, industrial yeah. jobs. Yeah. Like there's a lot of blue collar workers yeah. who aren't white, yeah, and who aren't men who have right. also lost jobs, right? And yet it's this 
core group of white men, it seems, that yeah. gets gets branded in this way. And yeah. So and it, I mean, there are historically reasons for that, right? I was, sure. I was just reading, um, there, there was this guy, Vincent Chin, uh, this is a Detroit story, not a Pittsburgh story, but this guy, Vincent Chin, who was Asian American, he was killed, actually, I, I live in Ferndale outside of Detroit, and the, the marker for his uh, very brutal murder is not too far from where I live in Ferndale, but he was, it was his bachelor party, um, and he was sort of chased out and killed by some white auto workers in Detroit wow. because they looked at him. He wasn't Japanese, but they looked at him and thought he was Japanese and their jobs were going to Japan. And this was the narrative they were being right. sold. And so it's not like we don't have ample evidence yeah. of white working class racism and violence. But I think that that, like any kind of broad stereotype, and that was certainly all men. I don't think there were any women involved in killing this. And shit. So, you know, like there, there are definitely reasons we think this and ways in which this is true. But it might just be, too, that those are the groups that we have studied the most and looked at the most in right. this context. So, yeah, um, we don't know how other yeah. groups are responding. Yeah. And, and, and where they're responding and how they're responding. Yeah. And there are also institutional ways, right, within unions and in all sorts of other ways that have kept, you know, sort of institutional racism and, and gender relations that have kept women and minorities out of a lot of these jobs. Like we were saying, mm. they were the first ones thrown out. Right. So they're sort of off doing something else by the time the stories get picked up. Too. Right. By the time we actually look at them as a, as like the plant is closing and right. what here are, are the, the employees doing, then the only workers that are left yeah. are these these guys. Yeah. So for you, just as a whole, the book is is there a lesson for cities as we can as cities continue to deindustrialize and, and certainly you live in a city that is in the midst of a, of deindustrializing and yeah. uh, I, I know you you've talked before about how you know a lot of the the lessons of Pittsburgh may not be necessarily transferable to Detroit but as North America and mm-hmm. frankly lots of parts uh, around the world it's going on in Asia as well deindustrialization continues to be an issue uh, so so what are the lessons and what can we take from Pittsburgh and Hamilton yeah, that's a hard question. I feel like whenever whenever I'm asked this question, I want to have an answer where I can say, you should do X, Y, or Z. And I think that part of the reason, I have a, a, a planning background or background in historic preservation planning, and so I've done some planning work. And I think one of the reasons I am not a professional planner is because I don't actually have any good solutions <laughs> to these sorts of things. It's much easier to sit back and criticize what is being done and pointing out how, uh, how things are going wrong. So I don't have a, a great answer a great solution for how to fix things, but I think that I think that the the book shows or hopefully helps clarify some ways in which people have gone wrong in the past and keep mm. going wrong over and over and over. Like for me, one of the most surprising things that I learned in my research was that essentially planning departments or city governments, I should say, just keep asking for the same planning study over and over and over. And they get the same planning study over and over and over, right? They might get it from their planning department. They might get it from consultants. They might, you know, they get it from, they might get it from a university with a planning department that they've contracted with to work with the students. But essentially they get told the same things over and over and over again. And they don't do most of them for a host of reasons, either lack of political will, or they don't have the money, or they're just impractical. Even if they, even if they might solve the problems, there's no way to do these kinds of things. But it's like nobody, nobody who actually works in any of these departments ever goes into the office library to look at the old ones. They just buy a new one, right? They just get a new one. And I think that it's very easy when you are not the one making the decisions or even trying to figure out the solutions to say you need to think a little a little bit differently uh, about these things, right? Right. But it's, it's an easy position to be in when you're not the one doing it. But 
there's been there's such a focus on best practices and looking at models and these sorts of things that aren't always super applicable to mm. the place that they're they're applying them to that I think has been really bad for the types of cities I talk about and probably a host of other kinds of cities. Right. And when you've got sort of a consulting package to buy or you you look at a place like Pittsburgh and say, all right, they offered tax subsidies, they use eminent domain to take land and tear down steel mills and hand them over to developers. They did these sorts of things. We'll do that too. Yeah. That's not necessarily going to be the I don't think that was the best thing for Pittsburgh necessarily or for all of the residents of Pittsburgh. And that's not necessarily going to be the possible in other contexts. Right. So you end up only being able to half implement these things. So I think some of it is is moving away from this idea that there's a one-size-fits-all best practice response mm. to urban problems, economic decline, physical, physical degradation, these sorts of things. But I think that one of the things that I hope the people making these decisions aren't thinking about as much as I think they should be is the degree to which they are actually kind of enshrining inequality mm. in the cities, in what they're doing. And I hope it is the case. I don't think, I mean, there, there are certain people that I write about who I think are terrible people. Uh, the former president of U.S. Steel, for instance, is a uh-huh. terrible human being. But for the most part, you know, I don't think these mayors and particularly, you know, the, the planners who are making, they themselves are middle class people, right? They're not, they're not local elites. They're, right. they're bureaucrats making kind of middling salaries. And, you know, they're doing the best they can. And I, I think maybe some of the individuals are bad people. But on the whole, they're trying to do what they think is the right thing. And not seeing or not, there's no incentive for them to see the ways in which they are, you know, dispossessing entire hmm. populations in their cities. Uh, and then you end up 20 years later with people throwing up their hands and wondering, well, how did this neighborhood get right. so bad? And you're like, well, you know, mm-hmm. you starve them of resources to direct all of those resources into tax incentives for corporations. What did you think was going to happen? <laughs> but when you're desperate to keep your tax, your companies from leaving, yeah. that's what you do. Because that is sort of like a short-term versus an inability to think maybe long-term. Right and worrying about the short-term gain. And I don't think I have to say, I don't, I don't want to be too down on planners, right? I think, the, I think that the way planning, planning has changed, the way people yeah. approach planning since the 80s, right? But certainly looking at Detroit, I think, is a good cautionary tale for how these things can continue to go wrong. And it's a, it's a really interesting story, and, and seeing you talk about it on numerous occasions, I'm very excited for the book to be out, which, again, it will be out when this goes live. So we're very excited about that. So you can also follow Tracy on Twitter at Tracy underscore Newman. And Newman is N-E-U-M-A-N-N. It is. And no E in Tracy. Or I. No or I. I yes. Yes. And again, the book, Remaking the Rust Belt, The Post-Industrial Transformation of North America, Tracy Newman, Wayne State University. Thank you. I'm I'm glad we were able to do this. I know. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. If you have any questions or comments for the podcast, historyslam at gmail.com. Twitter is at Dr. Shawnee Fever. And if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.